Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with moi, Bill Arnold. Thanks for being with me today. It's been a great Monday so far. I loved our last hour. We had Patrick on and we had a little bit of lightness and levity, which I think everyone can use at this time. And then uh, the Monday afternoon mix with Miles, Arnold, and Maxwell. I'm going to be chewing on this one for a little while. David gave us some great things to think about. Um, And if you missed it, I do recommend going back to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the show page and listen to it, you will uh, be blessed from it. This hour is going to be uh, great because Ken Samples is joining us, and you know him as our regular guest. We get him on once a month, and he is a theologian and philosopher. So if you've got some real deep questions, some deep thinking questions, it's a good time to fire them over to me right now, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. One just already came in. We're going to talk, I think, today a little bit about conspiracy And I don't know where Ken's going to take us with this, but I can hardly wait. So let me take a break and bring him on. Hello, I'm Franklin Graham. Maybe your heart has been gripped by fear, as millions of others have, because of this coronavirus pandemic. But I want you to know that God loves you. He made you. He created you. He knows everything about your life. You don't need to be afraid. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your heart, if you've never trusted him as your savior, you can pray right now to do that. Just simply pray this prayer. God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I believe Jesus Christ is your son, and I want to invite him to come into my heart, into my life. I'm willing to trust him as my savior and follow him as my Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to talk with you. Call 1-888-388-2683, 1-888-388-2683, or visit billygram.org. Sensical, logical, practical. This is what Ken Samples is going to help us with. That's his theme song that he picked out himself. It makes me smile every time I hear it. Thinking a theologian and philosopher, as that is his walk-up music. It's fantastic. Ken Samples, uh, you can learn more about him at uh, reasons.org. And I just uh, find him absolutely delightful with a perfect tone. And that's one thing that we love on this show is uh, kind of a gentle, nice tone. Ken, you, you embody that, my friend. Well, you're very nice to say that. I look forward to being with you uh, once a month. We always have a lot of fun, and you, you're you a very good uh, talk show host, one of the best I've ever uh, worked oh. with. Wow, you're, you're, you're embarrassing me. Continue. <laughs> well, you know, I love this idea that you said, let's talk about logically questioning controversial theories. And I don't know if I know how to do that very well, so you've come at the right time. 
Well, I think that this is a this is a an interesting topic. It, it certainly has applications uh, even now as we're going through the pandemic, and uh, <clears throat> it's something I've thought about a long time because I've heard conspiracy theories my whole life. And then when I became a logic professor, I thought, wow, I'm going to try to use my logical skills to kind of work through this controversial area. All right, so when we hear something, how do we go about addressing it, processing it, and trying to get on the right side of it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of weird ideas out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To, to, to be honest. Uh, so I kind of look at, I call them strange phenomena. I call them controversial theories. Uh, sometimes they're alternative conspiratorial explanations. So the kind of things that I have written about and talked about are things like UFOs, uh, apparitions of the Virgin Mary, uh, near-death experiences. And then, of course, there are kind of the big government conspiracy theories, uh, like the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. there, are people, there are people who deny the Holocaust, and uh, some people even say we didn't walk on the moon. So I kind of, uh, Bill, what I've done is I've created what I call a check, a logical checklist and I, I asked five basic questions to kind of see if these theories hold water, to, to see if they're worthy of my time or attention. And uh, I, I, try to, I try to focus in on some of the, some of the areas of logic that are, that are very helpful in kind of, uh, you know, kind of checking out things. All right. Should we uh, wet our whistles with something that came in from a listener? Sure, yeah. All right. This was from, and this is sort of took me um, by surprise. I didn't even know how to respond to her. I said that I would, uh, you know, ask you next time you came on. Um, she said she heard that DARPA, and I even had to look up, look up what that acronym is. It's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That uh, DARPA is developing a biogel doctored up with artificial intelligence and designed to attach to the cells in our bodies in order to transmit data to the government. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard, uh, I can't say I heard of that specific one, but it is very common that people have questions about uh, kind of what we used to call Big Brother, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Uh, that the government is kind of keeping an eye on people, um, and you know, I, I I think I think a couple things are in order as we think about that type of question. You know, what one thing I would say right up front is sometimes there are true conspiracy theories. For example, uh, I got my bachelor's degree in history. I love uh, American history. It was shown in court that there was a small conspiracy uh, to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Um, even Chuck Colson, who later became very distinguished Christian, uh, uh, worked in helping people in prison ministry. Um, uh, Chuck Colson said that there was, you know, a, a conspiracy within the Nixon administration when it came to Watergate. Uh, but Colson always made the point, very interestingly, I think apologetically, is that 
you know, it, the secret got out. And Colson interestingly made the comment that if the apostles had made up the resurrection and were trying to conceal it, um, you know, it would inevitably kind of leak out. And I think uh, first we can say there are times where there are some conspiracies, but I think we also need to we need to ask ourselves the question: um, How you know why would the government do something like this? And then how would we be able to kind of you know work through it logically? And I would even say this, Bill: I think there are times. Um, where Christians can be susceptible to embracing conspiracy theories that are not terribly sound. And I'm going to say it for a couple of reasons. Number one, of course, as, as Christians, we believe that there is a real spiritual world. We believe that there is a malevolent hand behind the universe. I mean, Scripture says the whole world is in, is in the control of the evil one. So we do believe there are malevolent forces in the world. And then secondly, I think that there are a good number of Christians who believe that the end of the world scenario will involve kind of maybe a one world government. So there is suspicion about government. Now, you know, having said that, um, th that doesn't mean that having some suspicion from time to time about the government is a bad thing. I mean, even the founding fathers put into our founding documents checks and balances with regard to, you know, government taking on too much power. I mean, the founding fathers, of course, were battling against uh, Great Britain, who had, uh, you know, had a pretty powerful force in the world, and they were concerned that a government can get out of control and therefore there needs to be, you know, rights and uh, checks and balances. Um, I, I think, of course, then the question is, how, how do we, how do we discover whether a theory like that, that the government may be involved in a malevolent act or some kind of self-controlling act, how would we come to know whether something like that actually has real legitimacy? And I have, again, kind of questions that I kind of work through. Yeah. All right, let's get started with this conspiracy claim that uh, the Roman soldiers, um, they thought he, Jesus was dead, but they actually, turns out he just really fainted and he was taken down from the cross. And so he was just really regaining consciousness. That's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Now, I, I think that this is really important that when it comes to Christianity, um, you know, the, the first alternative explanation of the resurrection right from the get-go is, um, you know, the disciples came and stole the body. Uh, so this then raises question, what about this story? We're told that Jesus died. We're told on Sunday morning, uh, women came to the tomb. The tomb was empty. People later saw Jesus raised from the dead. One explanation by people who are critical of Christianity was the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole the body. Uh, other alternative explanations is the one you mentioned, the swoon theory. Maybe, maybe Jesus was just deeply injured. Maybe in the cool tomb he revived, and um, maybe he made some kind of appearance, and people thought, wow, he was dead and now he's alive. What's interesting, Bill, I think, in looking at uh, 
I have a new book I'm working out on, and I, I have 20 evidences for the resurrection. One of the points I make in there is that all of the alternative naturalistic explanations of the resurrection, they all fail miserably. They're all very, very inadequate. I mean, let, let me touch on, let me touch upon both the swoon theory and the disciples allegedly stealing the body. You know, the Romans were pretty good at what they did, and there's no more um, gripping story than the death of Jesus by crucifixion. Um, you know, the Romans pronounced him dead. Uh, people there recognized that he was dead. His body was taken and placed into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Uh, being in a tomb for three days isn't going to do a whole lot for improving your condition. And so the idea that somebody who would be the recipient of Roman crucifixion and then would somehow convince uh, more than 500 people he'd risen from the dead, um, I, I think that that is extremely implausible, if not impossible. Mm -hmm. now, now, what about stealing the body? Well, what would the uh, what would the apostles get from stealing the body? What would motivate them? I mean, I, I have a couple friends who are police officers. They're detectives. You know, I like picking their brain. I like them asking them kind of logical detective type questions. They always bring up motive. What's the motive? What you know? What what did they have to gain? I would say the apostles had absolutely nothing to gain by stealing the body. And, and to do what? To invent a story that would deceive people mm. uh, and would ultimately end up in there, some of them being martyred or, you know, getting into serious trouble. So one of the reasons I believe Jesus rose from the dead, Bill, is because every alternative theory I have ever heard is is terribly implausible. Yeah, no kidding. Ken, let me take a little break. Ken Samples is my guest. If you have a question or a conspiracy you've heard that you'd like Ken to discuss with you, 877-933-2484. Welcome back to the show. Ken Samples is my guest. Let me know what the questions are. 877-933-2484. We're talking about conspiracies um, or whatever else you'd like to talk about. When it comes to Ken, he's uh, he's got a wide range of knowledge. So uh, let's go back, Ken, to this idea that Jesus really wasn't uh, crucified. And I think the point that you were making before the break was the Romans were experts at crucifixion. And given what he had gone through, um, and people were used to seeing dead people all the time. And, you, you know, right now we see prettified dead people, you know, in caskets and funeral homes, but they saw dead people all the time. Yes, that's right. And and what's, what's interesting is there were real, uh, very sharp laws about interfering with dead bodies. Uh, you know, if the apostles came and uh, interfered with... Uh, a, a prisoner that had been put to death. This is very serious business. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there, there's a lot of important details about the resurrection. It's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. They know, the the Christians know where that tomb is. Joseph of Arimathea was a, was a Christian. He was a Jew. He, of course, knew where his tomb was. The Jews and the Romans knew where the tomb was. So, you know, the idea that the 
women went to the wrong tomb. Uh, again, it's it's these alternative theories that fail so miserably that I think encourage us to go back and say, well, what are some of the best arguments for the resurrection if the naturalistic theories fail? Mm-hmm. And the swoon theory just does not even in the wildest part of my imagination hold up. That, that That's exactly right. You know, I, I will tell you an interesting story there. I knew of a, a philosophy student who got his doctoral degree at a school here in Southern California. He had been a Christian, fallen away from his faith, um, kind of got burned by his church, and it really left bad taste in his mouth. So he gave up his faith, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the idea that uh, maybe the resurrection is explained because Mary had two children. One of them was put up for adoption, and that adopted uh, brother, twin brother of Jesus, appeared right as Jesus after Jesus died, and that's why you believed in the resurrection. And I, you know, I thought to myself, uh, imagine how how creative, how inventive. Imagine the kinds of depth you have to go to to deny the resurrection. I mean, first of all, there's no record that there were two children born. Uh, and can you imagine the person, would, would he put wounds in his body to uh, make people think that he was the risen Jesus? And, you know, would he hide in the shadows? And what are the odds that all of this would happen? Of course, this this philosopher, he said, well, uh, the supernatural doesn't happen. So however extreme it was, it, it must have happened like that. Uh, but again, it brings us back, Bill, to the question of assumptions and presuppositions. I believe there are good reasons to think that a miracle could happen. But there are people who hold philosophical systems who say it can't. So they would say, well, even if it's a weird theory like a twin brother, it's more it's more plausible than a, than a miracle. Mm-hmm. All right, Ken, a listener asks, um, my question for Ken has to do with textual criticism. My understanding is that there are over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, all of which are copies of the original, but we don't have any originals. My question for Ken is this, how can we know that the manuscripts we now have are copies and are not the originals? Do textual variants help answer this question? Are there any other factors that help answer this question? Yeah, that's a that's a very that's a very important question. It's an important question because Christianity, like Judaism, is a religion of the book. Um, that that is, the Bible plays a critical role uh, in our faith. For Protestants, it's the final authority. But even in the other branches of Christendom, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Bible plays a very important role. It's viewed as the inspired Word of God. And I like the question that's asked. Um, well, if we go back into history, uh, you know, the New Testament was uh, began to be written in the first century. Um, probably Paul's letters are the earliest. They may have appeared maybe 20 years uh, within the time of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. The Gospels were probably written, uh, I'm, I take a pretty conservative view that they may have been written as early as the 50s, maybe into the 60s, maybe John a little bit later, maybe 70. 
Even if you take some of the more liberal theories, though, that push it back even further, it's they're still very early. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a, a little comparison. When it comes to Buddhism, you know, the Buddha had disciples, too. He had, he had a band of disciples who followed him around and wrote down things that he said. Well, um, uh, when it comes to the writings of the Buddha, they come like 450 years later uh, after his death, and we don't even know what century the Buddha was born in. So there are people who look at the New Testament and, and they're very suspicious about it. They're dubious. They're doubtful. They think it you know, emerges at very late dates. But uh, the New Testament is in very good shape in terms of text. Now, let me get back to this textual question. Um, well, look, we have manuscripts. Uh, we have papyra manuscripts or fragments of papyra manuscripts. These are some of the earliest uh, of the New Testament documents. They were written in primitive paper called papyra. The problem is, though, that, uh, you know, these these disintegrate uh if they're if they get moisture, you know, they flake away. But we still have some of the papyra manuscripts that go back to uh, the second, third, fourth century. We also also have codex manuscripts. They they look more like a, a book, um, and they again go to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth century. Uh, and we can compare these manuscripts. Um, for example. There are two religions that challenge Christianity with regard to manuscripts. Those religions are Islam and uh, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They say that the Old and New Testament manuscripts have been corrupted, and you have to read the Bible through the Quran or read the Bible through the Book of Mormon to really understand it. So they say there have been major distortions in the Bible. But we can disprove that historically. Uh, we can uh, pr disprove it textually because uh, the biblical manuscripts that we have in the 3rd century, the 4th century, the 5th century, the 6th century, they match the manuscripts we have today. Uh, sure, there are, there are textual variants, there are misspelled words, but, uh, you know, Bruce Metzger of Princeton Seminary, who is considered arguably the the leading textual scholar of the 20th century, he said no textual error or variant affects any specific Christian doctrine. You know, a lot of times uh, you have word endings that are misspelled, J just like, you know, when I copy a long manuscript by hand, or even if I type it. Uh, I remember the old days when my wife and I, we first got married, my wife typed manuscripts. I'd find, you know, mistypings. None of this disproves scripture. Right, right. All right, Ken, let me take a little break. Ken Samples is our guest. You can go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken. But if you've got a question, uh, let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. Maybe you've always had a, a thought about a conspiracy you've heard and always wondered. Let us know what it is. 877-93-FAITH. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Ken Samples as my guest today. He's a philosopher and theologian. So you can cover a lot of bases. If you have questions, let us know. 877-933-2484. Today we're talking about logically questioning controversial theories. And there's theories all over the place right now, Ken, with uh, COVID and where it's coming from and how it started and how it got transmitted and who's to blame and all of that. Not that I want to talk about that, but that's on the plate today. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I think, Bill, we will have uh, probably uh, thousands of books written on the pandemic of 2020. I agree. And it will be the very things you mentioned. Where, where did it come from? You know, is it from China? Did it come out of a lab? Did it come from animal to human? Uh, what were the responsibilities of people? How did people handle? Was the lockdown right? And on and on and on. Nice. Yeah, I would agree. All right, let's uh, move into another area. I just got a nice uh, email from Dave. You answered his question. Praise the Lord, Ken nailed it, as far as I'm concerned. He ref- referred to Bruce Metzger whom my question came from. Nice going, Ken. You're smart. Well, you got some great listeners, and and the the great thing, Bill, is that the New Testament is in really good shape textually. Your your uh, the person mentioned five thousand Greek. There are Latin manuscripts. Uh, there are many other languages where the Bible is translated. There there's no major changes, no major corruptions. Um, Christians should be people of the book. We should be thoughtful. We should be uh, well-read people because we're made in the image of God, and God has communicated his revelation through a book. So mm-hmm. we want to—these are good questions to think through. Yeah. Um, during the break, my producer, Rebecca, who is so smart, reminded me of the Mark Twain quote. She's, he, Twain said, it's easier to deceive someone than to convince someone they have been deceived. Wow. I like Rebecca. She's sharp. Yeah, I like her too. I like you too, Ken. (laughs) So let's talk about these near-death experiences where people have um, claimed to have been in the presence of God in heaven and then returned. Yes. um, I would, you know, what's what's very interesting is um, in the 1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s, there were books that started appearing, uh, a guy named Moody. Um, there were a number of authors uh, uh, that wrote books about near-death experiences that, you know, that, that people had um, uh, illnesses, heart problems, various things, and uh, they had afterlife experiences. Um, and... You know, what, what's very interesting is my sister had one of those experiences. I have an older sister. Her name is uh, Edna. She had scarlet fever as a child. It damaged her heart. She went in for a heart check in the mid to late 70s. She said that um, while she was laying on the bed there, she said her heart stopped beating And uh, the doctor started kind of furiously trying to revive her. She said she floated above her body, went through a cave. She heard moaning and groaning. And then almost immediately she was back in her body again. What's interesting is I've read a lot of these books. They're very, very similar. 
where people have claimed to have had after-death or near-death experiences. Some of them say they see Jesus. Some of them uh, some of them can actually give information about what was happening in other places. There, there are some very powerful cases. Uh, a man named uh, Sabom, who was a physician, uh, wrote several books on it. And he, he has one case where a woman had all of the blood removed from her, her brain, and she could give the doctor's names who came in to assist, she knew all kinds of information that was outside of her awareness. Uh, of course, I would bring in other elements. Some people say they see Krishna. Um, other people have, you know, made other claims. So these have to be thought through very carefully, um, you know, and, and they, they have to be given, uh, you know, careful consideration. Uh, it, uh, there, there is even uh, one case, Bill, that really uh, I thought was kind of profound. Uh, in the 20th century, there was a atheist philosopher named A.J. Ayer, A-Y-E-R, British. He was kind of the Richard Dawkins of his time, but I would even think he was more uh, careful and critical than Dawkins. Ayer was a top-notch philosopher, an analytical philosopher. Uh, he debated um, Frederick Copleston uh, on the BBC, on the Great God Debate. Copleston was a Catholic. Ayer liked uh, salmon. He liked fish. He was in the hospital with an ailment. One of his friends brought him some fish. He was eating the salmon. He started choking, and he died. And he had a near-death experience. And before they could resuscitate him, he said that he encountered uh, a being and the being expressed deep displeasure with his life and his lifestyle. And when he came back, he uh, shared it with Frederick Copleston and others that he, he wasn't sure uh, that he had changed his mind about God, but he now thought there was life after death. That's A.J. Ayer. So, um, so what are we to do with this? Is this evidence for life after death? Is it evidence for the existence of God? Uh, should, you know, how, how do we think it through? I don't think every near-death experience claim is deserving of our confidence and our belief, but there are some of them that are difficult to falsify or to reject. Yeah, I mean, I want to be honoring to people about their experiences that they're having with God, but I also uh, want to use discernment. So I'm thinking, what are some of the important questions to ask so we can test these claims and these theories. People love having these signs, and I think we've got God's Word. Yeah, and and I used to teach a class um, entitled Perspectives on Death and Dying. And, of course, I taught college students who think they're never going to die until <laughs> they heard about my final exam. Um, <laughs> but we would go through and we would say, hey, you know, maybe it, could this be some kind of hallucinatory experience? You know, is, is there some purely naturalistic medical explanation for this? Um, and yet, again, some of these are some of these have some pretty convincing evidence when they can actually tell you the names of assisting doctors who were outside of their field of vision, mm. or, um, you know, somebody like an A.J. Ayer who has 
no reason to lie or invent or embellish. So those kinds of things need to look be looked at very carefully, but they are a type of religious experience. And, um, you know, so much so that one of the leading experts on the resurrection, a friend of mine named Gary Habermas, Habermas looked at the near-death experiences, and he has come to the conclusion that I have that there are some that seemingly um, are very difficult to to simply explain away, and they may actually support life after death and, of course, our belief uh, in an ultimate resurrection. Mm-hmm. And of course, then you hear, you hear about signs you know, like Oral Roberts saw a 600-foot Jesus, and I'm thinking, really, you're the only one that saw that? Well, that's exactly right, and it, and it's perfectly appropriate to raise questions. There, there are times where uh, Christian people will make claims um, and uh, talk about experiences that don't seem to fit well with the Christian worldview. They, they don't seem... Uh, to be well-supported by facts and data, and they seem rather inconsistent with kind of the Christian theological perspective. And, um, you know, the Bible says, test all things. In fact, that that passage in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, the context of that is prophecy. And uh, Paul says a couple times, you know, let the prophet speak, and then, and then, test and evaluate every word that they say. So simply because a Christian is well-known or because they may come uh, from a famous uh, prophetic tradition doesn't mean that we necessarily believe them. And I think it would be good for non-Christians to know that Christians are careful. We're, we're not, uh, you know, we're not credulous people. We, we believe in truth, and we believe that truth will stand up to good testing. Mm-hmm. So, um, when we are looking at conspiracy theories, and there's rumors going around, and there's maybe some slander that's being said, I mean, those are things that believers should go, well, I need for you to substantiate that, and, you know, what is your, what is your claim? That's, uh, what, what's your truth claim? Otherwise, why would I be listening to it? That, yeah, that's certainly true. Um, you know, I I think that you've touched on something that I think is really very important, Bill, that I believe in what we call the golden rule of apologetics. And that means that we're fair-minded. It means that we try to treat other people's beliefs the way we want ours treated. That doesn't mean we believe what other people believe, but it, but it means that we treat it responsibly, we treat it fair-mindedly, we give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, I think Christians should try to extend respect to other people's beliefs. You know, and, and if you come up with all these theories, let, you know, let's say you're blaming the President of the United States, or maybe you're blaming... Um, you know, one of the organizations, uh, the FBI or somebody. As a Christian, you want to you want to have your facts. You want to have your evidence because, you know, you could be engaging in slander. You could be you could be harming somebody's reputation. So these are not things you want to take too lightly. You know, I I think conspiracy theories need to be rigorously analyzed. And Christians need to guard themselves in terms of what they believe. I couldn't agree more, Ken. 
when when conspiracy theories have the sense of alarmism attached to them, I never think that's good for the the body of Christ to be stimulated in that way. I I always want to go. Let's first calmly look at what Scripture teaches about this, and let's not race to some conclusion that is just going to instill fear. Because I think that's what a lot of conspiracy theories do: is they get you distracted. I think you're right on target. Mm. Uh, I that's think a first. that. Uh, no, I think you're you've hit on a critical point there, Bill. Um, I think a lot of times. Uh, it is based upon fear, anxiety. I mean, you know, um, government carries a very a very appropriate and powerful role in society. You know, if if the government were involved in malevolent things, obviously many people could be hurt. But again, we we have to, you know, we we have to think about those issues very carefully and not be kind of sucked into. Uh, uh, you know, fear and 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 doubt and those kinds of things. And though that's again why I kind of raise these checklists of questions. Mm-hmm. Ken Samples is my guest. Reasons.org is where you can go learn more about Ken, my regular guest, once a month. He's a th- theologian and philosopher, can cover a lot of bases. Chatting about conspiracy theories and how we should be looking at them as believers. Let's take a little break when we come back. Still time and room for your questions, 877-93-FAITH. Welcome back to the show. Ken Samples is my guest, theologian, philosopher, all-around great guy. We're talking about uh, conspiracy, and I tell you, Ken, I'm going to just read off a bunch of stuff that's come in because we don't have tons of time to talk about it all, but I just want to throw it out here um, and just listen to these and decide which ones we've got space to talk about. Do you think COVID-19 is a test run for getting ready for one order church and the second coming? Um, does your guest believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to people? World Trade Center, what about the smoking gun of 9-11 conspiracy? Um, you got one of those three you want to start with? Yeah, th- there's, those are all, um, those are all very interesting. I, um, I, I I'll, I'll tell you what, let me throw out to you this little checklist that I go through and then we can... We can kind of touch on them. Oh, good. Bill, I would say, number one, the first question I ask is, does the theory hold together foundationally? You know, you know, whether you think, you know, the federal government didn't knock down, you don't think Osama bin Laden knocked down the Twin Towers, you think George Bush did, you know, as an inside job. Well, does that hold together internally? Is it, is it, is it consistent internally? You know, what, what I thought was always rather kind of humorous is people would criticize um, Bush and say he wasn't a very competent president. And some of those same people said, but he pulled off 9-11. Well, um, does that hold together logically and consistently? Secondly, does it comport with the facts? Does it explain the facts? Uh, a good theory not only explains the facts, but 
you know, it fits with the factual data. Third, does it avoid unwarranted presumptions and assumptions? You know, a lot of times people assume certain things uh, to be true, but there's a long way between assuming something to be true and showing something to be true. Uh, a lot of times our conspiracy theories in terms of left and right, you know, the does the pandemic support Trump being reelected? Does it hurt his reelection? A lot of times our kind of political assumptions kind of inform our political theories, our, our, our um, conspiracy theories. Uh, then four, how well does the theory counter, uh, handle counter evidence? Um, you know, if you have a theory that something happened, what, what happens to your theory when there's a bundle of evidence that goes against it? Is it pliable enough to adjust and, and come back to it? And then f number five, finally, um, and maybe th the most important question, is the theory at least theoretically open to falsifiability? You know, in Christianity, Paul the Apostle said, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is false and it's worthless and you shouldn't believe it. But a lot of times when I talk to people about conspiracy theories and sometimes even debate them, I will ask them, well, what would falsify your theory? And a lot of times they look at me with a blank stare and say, nothing can falsify my theory. Well, if nothing can conceivably falsify it, nothing can validate it. Mm -hmm. So I think these are the kinds of questions we want to ask whether it's about into the world, uh, does you know, does the pandemic lead to something that will end up, or even if we're talking to people in the charismatic or Pentecostal tradition, and they say, "Hey, I've got a word from the Lord." Well, I'm going to listen very carefully to what they have to say, especially if they have credibility, if they've demonstrated that uh, they are deeply committed to the Christian worldview. But I'm going to test what they say by Scripture. And um, I think I'm doing them and myself and the church a favor uh, because the Bible talks about intellectual virtues. I mean, uh, in the book of Acts, it says that the Bereans, when Paul was preaching, they were looking at the Old Testament. Hey, does this guy really know what he's talking about? Checking sources. John the Apostle says, don't believe things too easily. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. So uh, faith uh, being critical thinkers is consistent with being people of faith. Agree, agree. There's another question that came in. How do we explain German Christians who believed Adolf Hitler's propaganda? Well, I, I, you know, I'll tell you that I think is very gripping. Um, Albert Speer, uh, wrote a book. Uh, he was Hitler's architect became, he was what, uh, Churchill called the, the most important Nazi because he became the minister of armaments and munitions and allowed the German war machine to go a lot further and longer than it ever did. Uh, Speer said that when he was teaching in Germany, he was caught up into the Nazi movement. And even though he was a university trained architect, he said, you know, it was just so popular. Everybody's doing it. All of my students were following this new charismatic leader. He said, I got sucked into it. I didn't look at the documents. I didn't read Mein Kampf. Bill, I think that tells us that all of us are conceivably vulnerable to being caught up into things if we're not very critical and reflective 
uh, and put things to the test. We don't want to be the victims of propaganda. Mm-hmm. You know, Ken, I'm curious as to what incident has triggered your interest the greatest. I mean, recently, with the death of Jeffrey Epstein, I was thinking, let's see, all the cameras had all of a sudden not stopped working, and one of the guards fell asleep, and the other one was buying furniture online, and they didn't seem to get a chance to check on him for like seven hours straight, and they found him dead in the morning. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting, Bill, is um, uh, one of the things that in my family, when we would have meals, my dad would always ask us questions, and we would talk about various issues. And I remember when I was a child, I was in elementary school, I was a Beatles fan. Me too. And there was, there was a conspiracy that Paul McCartney had been killed. And in order to keep the popular group together, they brought in a lookalike. Mm-hmm. And there were so-called clues on Beatle albums. And so I would look at the Beatle albums and see if I could, you know, discover the clues. And then later uh, I heard, uh, you know, stories about uh, the Bermuda Triangle. And I thought, wow, these are strange beliefs. And, you know, how do you know certain things are true? And then, of course, uh, I grew up in a Catholic family and uh, my parents were, really uh, struck by, you know, the death of President Kennedy. So I became interested in why do people believe in conspiracy theories? How do I test them? Uh, how do I work through them? And, and when I started teaching logic, I thought, boy, this is really, uh, logic can be a real tool to help us think through what, what I call, again, kind of strange, unusual, controversial or conspiratorial type thinking. Mm -hmm. Ken, another listener popped in with, I was told that Jesus was such a common name, and therefore it explains all the sightings of Jesus after the resurrection. Well, that, that of course, is is an interesting idea, isn't it? That there are people with multiple names. I mean, there are people in the New Testament, there are a couple different Jameses. Uh, There are even a couple different Johns. Is this John the Apostle, etc.? Um, uh, Jesus's name, uh, I don't know exactly how common it was, but I'm, I'm sure that, uh, the Lord Jesus was not the only one with that name, but of course, um, it isn't just the name Jesus. Often it associates Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, you know, this is the, the son of Mary. Uh, and of course, this is tied to specific people, specific times, specific places. So uh, I, I don't think you can explain away the events of Jesus's life by saying, well, there may have been another guy named Bill or another guy named Ken. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's too much There's too much data to explain. And the, the um, uh, apostles, when they spread out all over the, the, the world to start spreading the good news, they had no way of really communicating with each other. So they they needed to have consistent stories all the time, and each one of them went to their death believing in the story. You know, you know what's interesting, Bill. Uh, I've I love classical history. I I love history as a whole. I I think I can confidently say that there's no book in the world that has been more criticized, analyzed, that more people have tried to refute than the Bible. In this case, the New Testament, and yet some of the most educated, brightest, thoughtful people in the world 
are still arguing at Oxford University, at Cambridge, at, at Princeton, that, you know what, this book seems to have held up pretty, pretty well. And, you know, the as you mentioned, the apostles, they had a lot to lose. Uh, they had a lot to think about. Do I really believe this? Mm -hmm. uh, I think all of these are reasons to give careful consideration to the truth claims of the Bible and to say to Christians who listen to your program that uh, there are good reasons for believing in the truth of our faith. Yeah. I mean, if you know, three guys rob a bank, they'll put them all in separate rooms and ask them for their stories to see if they if they match, if they even line up remotely. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, I, one of the founding fathers, uh, Franklin, said three people can keep a secret if two are dead. I mean, <laughs> there these secrets kind of creep out, and yeah. you know, where would if 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 everybody was involved to kill President Kennedy, CIA, FBI the Russians, uh, Lyndon Johnson, whomever, you have all of these people. Would they meet at Madison Square Garden to plan all this? Yeah, good point. And then with that many people, wouldn't it leak out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ken, thank you so much for doing the show. It's just really fun to talk to you, as always. Well, I love doing this. Uh, you and Rebecca do a great job, so keep it up. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Ken Samples has been my guest, philosopher and theologian. You can head over to reasons.org to learn more about Ken. And then, of course, that wraps up today's show. Starting tomorrow, we're going to begin our spring share. We can't wait to celebrate with you. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.